0: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am editor-in-chief of Quillette. Quillette is where Free Thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kaye. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter.
1: Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay. My guest this week is Steven Pinker, a widely known professor of psychology at Harvard University and the author of over a dozen books. He's also been named to Time Magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people. In recent years, Professor Pinker has added another, more informal distinction to his resume. There is perhaps no public intellectual anywhere in the world who regularly succeeds in driving progressive critics batty. And on the surface, it's hard to explain why, because Steven Pinker's views aren't all that conservative. Rather, his recent books have stood up for mainstream concepts like the scientific method and freedom of speech. This includes his 2018 bestseller, Enlightenment Now, The Case for Reason, Science, and Humanism. Some of you listeners who've been with the Quillette podcast since the beginning may remember his 2019 appearance on this show, when he talked about the reaction to that book. What really seems to have irked many of Pinker's critics is that he refuses to proclaim Western civilization a failure, even as many of his fellow academics have been gnashing their teeth over Donald Trump and what they describe as the general malignance of the society over which he presided. And in the last few weeks, history seems to be repeating itself with the release of Pinker's new book, titled Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. I spoke to Steven Pinker last week over Skype about his new book, about the intellectual climate at Harvard and on American campuses in general, and about how we can all train our minds to think more rationally, including by understanding the so-called Monty Hall problem, for instance, which we talk about at some length. Oh, and trigger warning for any logicians or philosophers who are listening to this podcast, in one of my questions about 20th century scholar Kurt Gödel, I badly mispronounced the guy's name, saying Gödel instead of Gödel, though Professor Pinker was too polite to correct me explicitly on it. I actually thought about re-recording my end of that part of the interview and correcting it, but I decided that instead, I'm just going to own the thing. So, first off, I'm going to apologize uh, on behalf of Quillette, because I read the Slate review of your book, and one of the guy's many, (laughs) many complaints was that you had cited... Quillette in one of your passages and he added this to the reasons he didn't like your book although what was interesting even the Slate review which I think the title was Stephen Pinker's latest book is a stinker or something the review itself aside from the title was actually he tried to engage with your arguments did you find this go-around you got a more serious and substantive reception I noticed the Guardian some of the British papers had, had fairly serious coverage of your book uh, did you see signs of improvement in the intellectual climate into which this book landed as opposed to your last book?
0: Um, I, I can't really say that I did. The the uh, you know, a majority of the reviews have been positive, but there have been some that have uh, pulled out the shiv and, and uh, tried to stab me multiple times. Uh, speaking of The Guardian, they ran a... Uh, Actually, I've got to say a, a surprisingly mild review by Karen Armstrong, who is a, something of a religious apologist, and I'm something of a prominent atheist, so I, I was expecting the worst, and it was actually quite, uh, quite kind. The profile that they had, a, a rather detailed uh, and, and I think not terribly flattering profile, accused me, among other things, of uh, <clears throat> defending myself in the pages of, of the right-wing uh, magazine Quillette. So, you know, I don't have to tell you or probably most of the listeners of Colette that if anything describes Colette as right wing you know that they're coming to it with an axe to grind.
1: Well, and actually, uh, these these are tough days for us, uh, right-wing propagandists, because whenever I talk about the effectiveness of COVID vaccines, I'm accused of being a progressive dogmatist who gets his marching orders from the New York Times. And maybe you're getting some of the same. I mean, I noticed that when you talk about Irrationality in your book, some of the examples you give are of people who have irrational attitudes toward public health and vaccines in particular. I'm mostly looking at some of the reviews and the reception that your book has gotten in places like Guardian and Slate, which are progressive outlets for the most part. Has there also been any kind of backlash from the other side of the spectrum, people who are conservatives and vaccine skeptical in, in particular? Uh,
0: I've, I've gotten a, a couple of private emails from vaccine skeptics, and I, I got a uh, a note from a, um, a hardcore libertarian that uh, I was too hard on libertarianism, I think, at one point. Uh, I don't think I've gotten attacked from the mainstream right, such as the National Review um, spectator crowd, At least, <laughs> at least not yet. But that may, that may come. In terms of, of, of uh, Quillette being identified as a right-wing magazine, it fits with my uh, characterization that a lot of academics and journalists live at the left pole, this being the hypothetical location from which all directions are right. are right. Yeah. Uh, so just <laughs> when you're at the North Pole, all directions are south. Sure.
1: In the same way, Winnipeg looks like Palm Beach when you're standing on the North Pole. So um, <laughs> yeah, right. let's talk a little bit about the substance of your book. Uh, I remember... When I was in high school, I read a book, I think it was called uh, Godel Escher Bach. Oh,
0: sure, by Douglas Hofstadter, yes.
1: Even at the time, the details were murky to me. But what I remember from that book, or what I think I remember from that book, is the proposition, uh, and this is from Godel, I think his incompleteness theorem, that that no set of axioms can be proven simply by reference to the axioms themselves. The, The completeness of it can't be proven... Unless you make assumptions or bring in information from outside the system, am I getting that right?
0: Yes. I, I wish, actually. I uh, fortunately, my my other half, Rebecca Goldstein, who is the real expert on Gödel in the family, she wrote a book called *Incompleteness: The Proof and Paradox of Kurt Gödel*, but uh, I can't yell across the the house to confirm this. He's out. But my uh, my understanding from uh, from her book is that. Um, no uh, formal system, which means a system that, where you make deductions by manipulating symbols according to fixed rules, kind of like Euclidean geometry, but no system that's both consistent and powerful enough to express the truths of arithmetic can prove all the true statements that are stateable within that system. So there's some things that are true, but you can't prove them, at least not within that system. And the second incompleteness theorem is there was that little loophole, only if it's consistent. Okay, well, can you at least figure out whether it's consistent? And no, you can't prove that that the system is consistent either within its own uh, axioms and rules of inference. It's probably been overinterpreted. in the same way that Einstein's theory of relativity really doesn't mean that everything is relative, or that um, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle doesn't mean that everything... Uh, is affected by the act of observing it. It's one of three findings from math, physics in the uh, mid-20th century that have metaphorically been used to argue for a kind of relativism and and holism and and general fuzziness that I think the actual physicists and mathematicians would distance themselves from. And and Rebecca makes that point in her book, Incompleteness.
1: Sort of like the way people talk about Quantum theory as justifying seventeen genders or whatnot
0: <laughs> it's, it's exactly that that style of hermeneutics exactly so
1: okay so gödel i 'm going to start pronouncing him correctly now I, I was thinking of at least my my layperson's understanding of his ideas when you embarked on the project, which you admitted in the book is is kind of tricky of proving rationality and, and, and why it's important using the tools of rationality. There's a self-referential aspect to that. Was, was this something you had to grapple with as you were writing the book?
0: It was, and it's a, um, a subtle argument that recently has been made by um, Thomas Nagel, the philosopher who also happens to have been uh, Rebecca's PhD advisor. No, there is something very special about reason and and rationality, that it's not the kind of thing that you can prove to be true, because what are you going to prove it with other than rationality itself? But by the same token, uh, the very nature of rationality refutes any kind of relativism, the notion that everything is subjective all the way through. Because you can always step back and say, well, is that statement subjective? Is that statement relative? Uh, if the opponent says, well, yeah, of course it's subjective, everything is subjective, well, they can just say, well, okay, I don't have to believe it. Uh, you can believe it if you want, but you haven't given me any any reason uh, that I should. If, on the other hand, that person says, no, 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 everything really is relative, everything is subjective, by stating that categorically and as, as something that is objectively true, they have just refuted The very notion that everything is subjective.
1: I have a post-it note stuck to page 42 of your book, and I'll quote from it here, this paragraph. Ultimately, even relativists who deny the possibility of objective truth and insist that all claims are merely the narratives of a culture lack the courage of their convictions. The cultural anthropologists or literary scholars who avow that the truths of science are merely the narratives of one culture will still have their child's infection treated with antibiotics. And though relativism is often adorned with moral halo, the moral convictions of relativists depend on objective truth. Was slavery a myth? Was the Holocaust just one of many possible narratives? Is climate change a social construction? I'll end the quote there. So you do a good job of disarming the idea, the sort of argumentum ad absurdum that everything is subjective. But then it's interesting when you define what rationality is, you you get us away from this sort of romantic idea of a lone philosopher in his or her room, just doing the work of philosophy or a rational deduction. You talk about it as a group exercise. Uh, You talk about it as a group project where you say something and I use the tools of rationality to critique it and you might modify it. It's almost like a process of informal peer review. Is, is that one way to, to think about rationality?
0: It is, and it's, it may not be inherent to the nature of rationality, but it is inherent to rationality as it is carried out by us uh, all too fallible humans. It, it might be possible that there's some you know, angel or brainiac or, or Spock who will always come to the uh, objectively true conclusions, but we're we're not them. We we humans, we we do have the numerous biases and fallacies that behavioral economists and and cognitive psychologists have been pointing out for decades. Uh, But that doesn't mean that we should fall to the cynical conclusion that you can't expect rationality out of us because we are a bunch of cavemen out of time or primates. Because what we've done is we have concentrated and purified and pooled the rationality that each of us have in these Communities of reason that are dedicated to the superordinate goal of finding objective truth, and that implement rules and norms and mechanisms that try to squeeze as much truth as we can out of out of inherently flawed arguers. Uh, And the way that we do it is, even though each of us is liable to a bunch of fallacies, we're not bad at spotting the fallacies of others. And this is a kind of hypocrisy that could be put to good use, namely with a free press, with peer review, with open debate, with an adversarial system, you can have a a marketplace of ideas where hypotheses, ideas, theories are broached. They're then targets of criticism. You see which ones can withstand the criticism. You hang on to the ones that seem to be um, holding their own so far, discard the mistakes, and then bit by bit, the species, or at least the rational communities among the species, can grope their way toward rational conclusions.
1: And now, a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I have taken courses on Adobe Photoshop, and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project, so you can apply what you've learned. Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes, with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash Quillette and get a one-month free trial premium membership. That's S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E. Skillshare.com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. Some of your book is dedicated to logical mistakes that people make. One is called the Monty Hall problem. Its origins are in a game show, at least in the example you give. Could you talk about the Monty Hall problem and and what it says about how how really really smart people can be? Being irrational and being illogical aren't the same thing, but I think in this case they actually do overlap.
0: So the Monty Hall problem, I think it was originated by Martin Gardner, the longtime mathematical games columnist for Scientific American, based loosely on the game show. There are three doors. Behind two of them are goats, behind one of them is a sleek Tesla, let's say, and uh, Monty Hall knows what's behind each door, but the contestant does not. The contestant picks a door, obviously it's got to be pretty much at random, let's call it door number two. Monty Hall then opens door number, let's say, three. Behind it is a goat. So you pick two. You now know that door number three is a goat. Do you switch your guess to door number one or do you stick with door number two? Now, almost everyone says you stick with door number two or that it's 50-50, flip a coin. The correct answer is you should switch to door number one. Uh, Now, not only is this counterintuitive, but many people have firm convictions in the wrong answer. They absolutely are positive that the, the chances of the uh, prize being, high, being behind the two doors is equi-probable, 50-50. And they consider it to be a idiotic blunder to say that you should switch, even though that is the correct answer. And it was made famous when Marilyn Vos Savant, a columnist in Parade magazine, which is the kind of recipe and gossip-filled color supplement to many Sunday newspapers, she explained the problem, she explained the answer, and then she got a a shower of abuse from, including from many math professors. Well,
1: one guy actually said that he, he he had an exclamation mark. He said, "You blew it. It's it's here in your
0: book." <laughs> yes, I, I couldn't resist quoting it. And of course, one of them said, "Well, maybe women think differently from, from uh, men." But Marilyn vos Savant, who is <laughs> had been designated the uh, the world's smartest woman according to the Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, She was right, and the know-it-alls, the the mavens, the mansplainers, the fancy-schmancy PhDs were wrong. Now, just to take a step back, why is she right? Now, by the way, you can show that she's right even if you just play the game yourself. Play it 10 times, try it, and you will see. The strategy of switching gets you the prize more often than the strategy of of staying. So you can prove it to yourself that way if if the uh, logic is not persuasive. The logic is that you have been given information about where the car is likely to be in the fact that Monty could have chosen door number one and uh, did not. The fact that he didn't choose it is leaking information that uh, it very well might be there. And probability is a uh, has a number of definitions. It's actually a very interesting concept. It's not, not as easy to define as most people think it is. Uh, but many of them hinge on not the way the world is, but, the, but our ignorance of the world. And my favorite il- illustration is much, is much simpler. Okay, I've just flipped a coin. Uh, I've just peaked at the way it lands. What's the probability that it landed heads? Well, for you, it's 50-50. For me, it happens to be 100%. I, I, I peaked, it landed on its head. How could the same event have two different probabilities? Well, because probability is a matter of knowledge and ignorance. You don't know. You didn't see it. So for you, it's 50-50. That is a correct answer. From uh, For me, it's 1.0. It's, uh, That's also true of the probability that the car is behind the door. It depends on your state of knowledge or ignorance. And you, the contestant, being uh, ignorant, you've had your ignorance reduced by the very fact that Monty did not choose that door, but could have. And vaux Savant tries to make it intuitive in the following way. So imagine there were a thousand doors. You pick one. Monty opens 998 of the others, revealing goats. Now, do you stick with your door or do you pick the one that he chose not to open? Well, that seems kind of intuitive. You should pick the one that he left unopened because he has conveyed information. It's much more intuitively obvious when it's 998 versus one than when it's just one against one. But the principle is the same. There is, he, his choice was constrained by a fact of the world, probabilistically constrained because he could have opened either of those doors, but it conveys information and probability is a matter of information, a matter of knowledge.
1: The other thing I wanted to discuss was what's known as the availability heuristic. This one is interesting because it has had a huge effect on everything from mobbing to ideological silos to the growth in anxiety in the Western world, even as by objective measures our societies have become safer. And the availability heuristic is sort of a fancy way of saying when information or fears or concerns are made available to you, say on your smartphone, because they're always on your feed, you become fearful of them and you begin to overestimate the likelihood that they're going to happen. And this can have a political aspect. I remember after 9-11, you had some liberals or progressives, as we would now call them, who who bravely said to us, hey, by the way, as horrible as 9-11 was, your chance of getting killed in a terrorist attack is still a lot lower than your chance of dying in a car crash or your chance of dying from a heart attack. And, you know, there's all these things we can do to prevent those things. So maybe instead of going off and invading other countries, we could, you know, fasten seatbelts and quit smoking and stuff. And, and and the response in most cases was was not, oh, thank you for your rational contribution. I guess we'll do that. It was, it was much more negative. Than that. Then twenty years later, the, the the shoe was on the other foot, and you had conservatives who responded to say the abolish the police movement by saying, you know, it's really terrible that the police sometimes brutalize and even kill innocent people, but is it really helpful to scare people, especially black people, into thinking that as soon as they walk out the door, they're going to get shot down in a hail of bullets? The chance of getting shot by a police officer is, well, anything higher than zero is too high. It's not as high as dying in a lot of other common ways. Are, are those examples of the availability heuristic? And, and how do we fight that? Because going back to when we were talking about the Monty Hall problem, where even very smart people got sucked in by it. Some of the people you see on social media who who seem to really go in hardest on the availability heuristic are like academics and columnists at fancy newspapers, conservatives and liberals alike. Is this something you've noticed uh, at Harvard, for instance?
0: Oh, everything you said is, uh, I would say, is an understatement. Indeed. So the availability heuristic is the a quirk that we all have—not a quirk, but it's a feature or a bug—of estimating probability according to how easily we can recall examples. That is, how available examples are in memory. Identified by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, we use our brain's search engine as our means of assessing probability. And in, in in an era before there were good data sets kept by government agencies, it was all we had to go on. We, And still, you can intuitively feel it, like, are you likely to get liver cancer? Well, your first thought is, oh, gee, how many people do I know who've had liver cancer? It's In the absence of access to data, it's the best we can do. But what it means is that anything that affects memory is going to distort our intuitive statistics, such as newspapers or news sites. Journalism is an availability machine. It gives us vivid images of gory events, inflating our subjective probability. Everything from shark attacks and uh, tornadoes and plane crashes to shootings by rampage shooters, uh, terrorists, police shootings. Things that get a lot of news coverage get inflated in our imaginations and, in, and then distort our fears, as in the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan to prevent probably far less than the 3,000 people who uh, died in 9-11 because that terrorist attack was itself a, a massive outlier in terms of terrorist attacks. The uh, way that we terrify children with active shooter drills for a quite trivial risk compared to car crashes and drownings and, and all the other ways that kids can get killed. In the case of uh, police shootings, the number of, of people killed in ordinary homicides, not by the police, but uh, but by gang killings and arguments in bars with jealous uh, boyfriends and girlfriends, uh, about 7,500 African-Americans die in these homicides every year, about 23 uh, unarmed, ones die from uh, police shootings. Uh, and and it is known from polls that this is a case in which people on the left are statistically out to lunch when they estimate, say, how many unarmed uh, African-Americans are shot by police. They're off by a factor of 10, sometimes a factor of 100, almost certainly inflated by the viral videos. In a case like that, it's not just the availability heuristic that's behind the the misconception. It's probably that some beliefs become sacred values, shibboleths that show your allegiance to some moral cause. And uh, doubting it or even not even so much doubting its factuality, but bringing it into the realm of factuality where you can ask the question, well, what is the risk compared to other risks that, that we face? How do we compare police shootings against gang, gang shootings? Uh, how do we compare terrorist attacks against barroom brawls? Even asking the question, stigmatizes you as uh, some kind of of, of traitor. This is true of the right in the wake of 9-11. You're with us again. You're with us, exactly. And and it's it's true again. Now, what what sometimes happens, and I do discuss the kind of perverse rationality behind it, rationality always being relative to a goal, the goal may not always be the best understanding of objective risk. Sometimes the goal is to enhance solidarity within your nation, your tribe, your political faction. For that, highly salient events that uh, drive our availability bias may be effective ways of cementing and and firing up a coalition. In particular, what I call communal outrages. is a phenomenon first identified by uh, Thomas Schelling in 1960, and uh, Lita Cosmides and John Tooby have also written about the phenomenon. When there is a highly public attack or affront targeting a member of your coalition, uh, and it's conspicuous so that everyone knows that it's happened and everyone knows that everyone else knows that it's happened. It can be an effective rallying point for a, coal- a coalition to coalesce and to be fired up. So an example, 9-11 was an example. The George Floyd murder was an example. Pearl Harbor was an example. The Tunisian fruit peddler who immolated himself in Tunisia kicking off the Arab Spring was an example. So on the one hand, it's, there's a, a kind of strategic rationality It it is an effective way to get a movement going, for for better or worse, even at the same time as it is actuarially irrational in that it can inflate people's perception of fear and distort what is objectively dangerous and and what is safe.
1: Whenever I read your books, I have to remind myself that that you work in a university. (laughs) In terms of the state of the academy, just hours before we are having this call— Uh, JSTOR Daily, a scholarly uh, online magazine, they tweeted out an article, why academic indigenous collaboration is tricky. And the tweet is, working in indigenous contexts may require researchers to start from a subjective position rather than the objectivity that academia often prizes. Are there people who will argue flat out to you that we need to move to a post-rational mode of analysis, not just postmodern and, and all that entails, but an explicitly post-rational framework for examining the claims of other groups?
0: Well, you just cited a, an example that if we have to start with a subjective understanding, I mean, now to the extent it's we have to empathize and get inside the heads of the people that we are studying, that can be itself a rational technique, as long as that doesn't apply to what you're actually asserting is true or false of them. But yes, the corrosion, the undermining of the very ideas of uh, objective truth and rationality, which are are rampant in in academia, have been since the the 70s, would be a repudiation of the ideals of rationality. Uh, And uh, ironically, coming out of a university since the the ultimate point of a university is to add to and transmit our, our knowledge.
1: Stephen Pinker's new book is called Rationality, What It Is, Why It Seems Scarce, Why It Matters. Thanks
0: so much for being on the Quillette podcast. It's been my, uh, my pleasure my honor, John. Thanks for having me. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette.